Welcome to Broadway's Backbone with Brad Bradley, a podcast dedicated to the men and women of the ensemble, the chorus of dancers, singers, and actors that are the foundation of every Broadway musical, actually every musical. These often unsung gypsies are the hardest working people on the boards and are, well, Broadway's Backbone. Today our special guest is Tara Rubin of Tara Rubin Casting. Hi, I'm very honored that Tara Rubin is here with me. How are you doing tonight? I'm good, thank you. How about you? I'm um, fantastic. Well, I'm going to start off to read some of your uh, your casting credits. I won't say them all. Producers, Mamma Mia, Thou Shalt Not, Oklahoma, Spelling Bee, Jersey Boys, History Boys, Mary Poppins, Young Frankenstein, Little Mermaid, Billy Elliot, Shrek, Little Night Music, Hugh Jackman, One Man, Two Governors, Ghost, Big Fish, Bullets Over Broadway, and currently you have on Broadway... The Phantom of the Opera, Aladdin, Les Mis, School of Rock, and Upcoming Disaster. Thank you. Yes. So, um, tell me, how did you get started? Uh, what led you to being a casting director, and where are you from? I'm from Southern Illinois originally, but I've lived in New York since right after college. I went to Boston University, and um, when I moved to New York, I kind of avoided being an actor if I could. I I worked in publishing, I worked at Arista Records, um, I wrote advertising copy, and I copy edited romance novels. But I was always sort of like uh, involved with my actor friends and working with them on different little projects. And so then the, I had a little period where I tried to be an actress, and that wasn't very successful. Um, but I was lucky enough to meet Jeff Johnson and Vinnie Liv, and I went to work for them in 1986 as their casting assistant. And I ended up staying for 15 years. So that was my, um, my lucky break was meeting Jeff Johnson and Vinnie Liv, just like every other actor in the world, only in a different way, right? Absolutely. A lot of people say that you're the nicest casting director in New York City. And <laughs> well, you, and thank you. you I'm and not you, sure that's true, Well, but thank I, you. I think it is you're known for being kind. Someone uh, yesterday said that they always feel like they give a good audition because you bring something out uh, in them. So that's one reason why I uh, thought I'd asked you to do, to do this podcast. So there's a rumor that you're so nice that back in the day before cell phones and things like that you would call people at their survival jobs to tell them they got the job a couple of times um i, I remember <laughs> a couple of times you know calling somebody at a restaurant and and uh, uh and hearing everybody cheering in the background when you know and 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 that was that's something that you miss a little bit i mean it's so much easier now to to be in touch with people but yeah i used to or you know the temp job and and leave that message. Yeah. That oh, was, that is fantastic. Yeah, it's really great. Um, there's one actress. Uh, I think she's a more of a director now. Who um, I left a message at her home on a Friday night because I thought, oh gosh, you know, she'll she'll want to know before the weekend that we're casting her. And she said she thought it was like a crank call. Was like, why would the casting director call me at home on a Friday night at like eight o'clock? And so she and her friends played it all weekend and like tried to detect, like, is that real? Should I call her? It was, it's funny. So, uh, oh, that is fantastic. <laughs> I think one misconception that actors have is that casting directors are the bad guys. And then they come in and you're really scary. But the truth is, is you're rooting for us and you want us to do a good job. 
Yes, I, I, you know, we want to get the job done. When you are brilliant, we look like we're brilliant for knowing you, right? So, of course, it, it and also, just for the sake of efficiency, if we have an audition, we hope that we will cast the role at that audition and not have to go back and do it again. So, um, yeah, I would say, even if a casting director might not seem like he or she is on your side, truly, he or she is. You know, they, they want you to be great because they want to look great, too. Oh, absolutely. I think that's, I mean, that's good to know, though, because I don't know, I think we have so much fear and anxiety walking in the room that we put that on everyone behind the table. Well, of course you do. I mean, it's only human when you think that, you know, someone going into a dance call is so exposed, right? All he or she has is his body to get a job. And then, of course, the singing. And, and nowadays, the, the demands on ensemble players is, you know, so intense. Everyone has to dance like a maniac. Everybody has to sing. Everybody has to probably cover a principal role. So the you know, the, the respect that we all have in my office, and I'm sure my, my casting colleagues outside of our office share it, is that the, the admiration and respect for the people in the ensemble is enormous. I mean, you and I were talking before we started the interview about in addition to everything you see the ensemble people doing on stage, they're running backstage and changing wigs and, cha- you know, some cuts. Sometimes you hear, like, they have, like, 12 wig changes in a, in a night or, you know, 30 costume changes. Yeah. And, and uh, blending into all those different people, you know. We used to have an ensemble of 40 people. Now maybe we're lucky if we have 12, oh, right? And so that's crazy. That, just cra- that, you know, increases the work for each ensemble person exponentially, just trying to do all that. I remember my first audition for Johnson Liff was the Blizzard of 96, <laughs> which was four feet. Jonah's was three feet. Uh, and I went through the snow and went to that Cats audition, and it was not canceled. And uh, I think it was on the, I feel like it was not the Imperial, the Majestic Theater stage. It was my first time on stage, and we had to do a double outside pirouette. You were there, mm-hmm. I believe you were there that day. Mm-hmm. And it was just so exciting. They don't have, why don't they have auditions on Broadway stages anymore? It's too expensive. Uh, and, and dance auditions also, you know, I think it's easier for the dancers to do it in a room with mirrors and, you know, the learning process is faster for them. Um, but the, the costs of, of a theater are, are kind of prohibitive. Mm. I mean, if you are lucky enough to have Hal Prince or, or Mike Nichols directing, God right. rest his soul directing your play, then, you know, you, you, that comes with the budget to use the, the theater for auditions. But... Outside of those people, and it's quite frankly for us, it's easier to do it in a room. We can, you know, it's just log- the logistics of doing auditions in a theater are a little tricky sometimes. But um, but there's nothing like it. Right? Oh, absolutely. There's just nothing like absolutely. you know seeing everybody on stage. Uh, a lot Victoria of oh. auditions were always and uh-huh. were always on stage, and that was really exciting. I always felt like I was in a movie. You know, oh, watching abs- all those people yes, up it's there. so yeah. true. Yeah. A lot of people associate you with Cats. Is, was Cats your first big show? Well, the first, my first, I always say the first day as an assistant in 1986, um, I was setting up appointments for the original company of Les Mis, which I am still casting to this day, <laughs> which is sort of fun. I mean, there was a period, there was a, a brief period where we weren't casting Les Mis. There was no tour and it wasn't, it wasn't, um, playing on Broadway but so that was the first 
show as an assistant. But, but I would say Cats is definitely one of the first shows that I began to go to as a casting director and that I was responsible for organizing auditions and attending them and, and things like that. So, and those were often, those auditions were often at the Winter Garden, almost oh. always, yeah. Yeah, I remember I auditioned for it in the Schubert Theater in Los Angeles as well when I was a, when I was a kid. I drove up from San Diego uh-huh. because it was Cats. I mean, everyone wanted to be Cats at that time. <laughs> right, right. I was looking at my credits and realized that you cast the majority of my uh, shows, and the only one that your name isn't on uh, is Steel Pier, which Johnson Lit cast. Mm-hmm. So that's really where you got your wings. Mm-hmm. I was there for fifteen years. I, um, you know, it. it it's I'm happy for young people coming into casting because I think what we do is a little bit more defined now and so but at Johnson Liff for about like between five and seven years I was a casting assistant I was a casting associate and I was a casting director you know there were just a few of us there were five of us in the office I think and there um you know, one day I would go to an audition and cast something, and the next day I would set all the appointments for Miss Saigon, and then the next, you know, and then the next day I would file the pictures and uh, come up with a list of people to be on Another World or something. So it, it was kind of, it's hard, but yeah, so Cats was definitely one of the first shows that I began to do some of the casting on. Wow. So I'm, I'm very biased, but I think <laughs> that uh, casting the ensemble was probably one of the most difficult things to do with the show and how many people would you see for say 10 tracks oh gosh i'm terrible with numbers but let's just work it out so if you say it's an original broadway show and we have an equity dance call that would be our first step so however many people came that day maybe 200 and that could be a modest number but so but let's be modest we'll say 200 and then we would probably do an invited dance call people who have worked with the choreographer, people that we love to um, introduce to the choreographer. So then that would be what, like maybe 50 to 100 people. And um, at that audition, there would probably be people who came through agents and things like that. So the minimum would probably be two or 300 people for you know a new ensemble. Oh, plus then you have the singers, the people who sang first, and then they go through a dance audition. And some of the people who come in to audition for principal roles will be exciting to us, more, more exciting to us as an ensemble member than as that principal part. So then those people have to do some sort of a dance audition. So you can see how the numbers increase just from that, you know? Absolutely. And then say for a lead role, how many would you see sometimes? Well, quite you know, so many fewer, right? Right. Because sometimes the, the star is cast before you get started, if you're lucky. You right, know? exactly. <laughs> and, um, and then, you know, that would be just, you know, maybe you have, you know, 20. That I think 20 would be a, a large estimate of people who would come in for the starring role if you were cast, even casting, using the casting process to find your right. star. So, so you, I mean, up to 500 people are vying for these, well, I say 10, but... Like five and five, five ensemble. Right, and Maybe then two or three swings, depending on the size of the cast. And we touched on this before, but not only did, so. First, they dance, then they sing, then maybe they go and learn music from the. You know, we ask them to learn a song from the show, so we can explore that person as a cover for the show. Work on scenes, 
And so, you know, the, the work that each ensemble person puts into getting a job is just such a, you know, you just can't have anything but admiration, right? Oh, no, I, I agree. <laughs> I, I definitely agree. Because you realize how hard they work. And now that I've been doing some principal work and I look at the ensemble, I look at the work I'm not doing, I'm just like, oh my gosh, that's what I normally <laughs> do. Look how hard these guys are working. Right, right. And I think a performer's journey um, starts on um, first day of rehearsal. Sometimes that's when your journey ends. Do you get a special attachment to each show and to casting, or are you just are you right on to the next one? Both things happen, I think. I mean, oftentimes... Uh, I, I oftentimes wish I could have like a little break in between projects, but it hardly ever happens. So you finish final casting on something and chances are you're you're either in the office setting the next thing up or even it's already set up and you're at those auditions the next week. So there's not much of a break in between projects. Um, and you do kind of go on with your life. But we, I miss being involved. I always say I would love to be a PA sometime, you know, so I could really sit through the the the, cat, the rehearsal process. And I'm always fascinated by, like, changing the order of songs and taking out a song and putting in a new song mm. and rewrites and all of that. So all those revisions that happen during the rehearsal process. And, and I would love to be present and see how that was, you know, when they decided to do that and, and when they taught this person a new song. Right, you know, yes. I would love to see that. So I do miss out. I do miss uh, not continuing in the process. But then we catch up and, you know, God willing, if it's a, um, if it's a long-running show, we continue our relationship with the creative team when we do replacements or a national tour and things like that. So, so when you have a replacement, say something like Phantom uh, and, and Les Mis, do you... Is it just like uh, riding a bike? You're just like, oh, now I have to find a, a Meg, or all of a sudden, are you? You know, I always say that, that I call it the paradox of casting, which is that there are millions of unbelievably talented people, and yet, at least for me, it might not be the same for every other casting director, <laughs> but for me, every part seems like it's always a bit of a challenge mm. to cast. And so, you know, some with replacement casting, sometimes it's it's so simple you already sort of identified the person who's going to replace Brad Bradley you had that in the back of your mind and he happens to be available and he happens to want to to step right in and then sometimes the the set of uh, responsibilities that that ensemble person has becomes so complex that he covers the lead but he also does ballet tricks or you know I'm making things up but and oh, no. he happens That's to have true. an amazing tenor voice and so He's got, you know, huge high tenor responsibilities in the ensemble. So then sometimes replacing people in the ensemble becomes a huge challenge. We we laugh and whisper to each other like on opening nights, like, please don't let that person ever get another job. <laughs> you know, like we, we we see that throughout the rehearsal process he just started doing more and more and more, you know. But um, so it's it's not always um, as as simple as you might think it is to, to do replacements. One thing that I think I've noticed now that's well, unfortunately, women have always had this issue is the body image issue and uh, having to always stay thin and and I, I see that happening to a lot of girls in the ensemble. But now men are judged on their biceps much more than when I moved here. They I guess someone said when you first get to New York, you have to. Get, make sure you get a gym membership. 
when I moved to New York, they were like, get a good dance teacher mm -hmm. and uh, an acting teacher. How has that changed um, the body image thing, too, when a girl walks in or a guy walks in and unfortunately you have to judge them on their appearance? Mm -hmm. Well, it depends on the choreographer and the story that the choreographer is telling. Mm. So in something like um, the producers where the female ensemble is most, you know, they play showgirls a lot, and they, so they have to look like showgirls, and they have to have the silhouette of a showgirl. Absolutely. Um, and then, let me think of something, uh, like the ensemble of School of Rock isn't a particularly, I mean, they do some, they do movement and dancing, but the adult ensemble is mostly singers, and they play teachers and adults and parents, and so we were able to have different you know, we didn't have that kind of dance imperative on that ensemble that you have and others. But even in some um, dance ensembles, you you do have the leeway to have, you know, depending on the choreographer, to have a, to build a village a little bit, you know. Absolutely. You know, and to, to, you need multi, you, you need to be multi-ethnic and you want, to, you know, a little bit of different shapes and sizes as long as the the choreography can still be executed. And right, and some period pieces, you're allowed to be hippier and stuff like that, so that's always mm -hmm. always nice that you don't all have to be rocket looking. I always think that young people should know that like, they should be, have the body that they're comfortable having. And so, you know, if you are a beautiful young woman and leggy and a dancer, and you are, um, you know, more overweight than the other girls there then you just you you need to look at that are you happy as you are and do you feel great then then you're not overweight and you're exactly who you want to be but you should just if you aspire to do things that people who have different bodies do then you have to examine that you oh know? absolutely you no, that's a wonderful way to put it but you know it there are young women who are you know have substantial great bodies you know and they aren't real thin and and there are people who are naturally thin and everything in between and you know i i want to celebrate all those bodies and i want to celebrate all those dancers and and uh, you know hope that the imaginations of the people that we work for will celebrate them too sometimes you know oh i absolutely so, know yeah so this is a question that a lot of people uh, unanimously like, ask her this. What is the truth about required calls? Uh, the equ uh, Actors' Equity requires you to have calls for certain shows every six months. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people are just assume that you're never looking. So what is that? And they're like, oh, they, they always joke. They're like, it's the assistant's brother that's sitting in the room <laughs> <laughs> or something like that. Well, there are rules about who, you know, someone with casting responsibility needs to be at the call. So... Um, you know, I think assistants do end up going to those calls sometimes, but they are there representing us. They're not there just uh, as a placeholder. If, you know, if an assistant or an associate comes back from an audition, the day that, well, it's almost always an associate who would end up being at, at an audition, then that person had represented all of us that day. And, and we look at that person when she comes back in the office and is like, who was good? Who wasn't, you know, who do, because we're all supposed to always be helping each other out. So, exactly. So do you have anybody for Mary for Jersey Boys? Do you have anybody for Eric for Aladdin? Like, you know, we wouldn't, even if someone other than one of the casting directors attends, 
whoever comes back has the same responsibilities as me or Eric or Mary or Lindsay or, or Caitlin. So um, we take them seriously. We also need them. I mean, you really cannot maintain a long-running show without having open calls. The ballet corps in Phantom of the Opera, the Les Mis singers. I mean, I, Jersey Boys, I can't think of a show that we've ever cast where there wasn't, even Spamalot had, had a, a dancer in it who came to the equity dance call. You know, I can't think of, an, of a new musical that we've ever cast that didn't have at least one person who came through the open call process. And then it really changes when you're maintaining because you begin to find each other, don't you? Like the people who do the special things that you need for that particular show find out about it and they begin to come to those calls. Guys who are right for Frankie Valley begin to come to the calls. Or, um, so I, I feel like I don't know how we would live without those, those required calls. It's always good to, to go to them if you can. And you never know if you come in for Aladdin and you end up in the mix for Miss Saigon or whatever. Oh, you know? absolutely. Well, I know uh, that I went to the open call, the required call for Billy Elliot, because I missed all of the auditions because I was on the road for, with Spamalot and just got put on file and I got cast. So I know, for, I mean, I know for a fact that, you I mean, I got on file for from a required call. Yeah, we don't throw anything away. No, and so, I mean, so I, I'm proof that it happened. But yeah. then I say that to friends, and they're like, well, dance calls, they're always looking. It's when you go in for the 16-bar uh, quick singers call that they're not. But we just talked about that, so mm -hmm. people just need to, they need to go to auditions. Yeah, and you know, you might not hear from us for six months, or, you know, you might hear from us for something else, or... You might have to come two or three times to two or three different open calls before we begin to figure out where we might fit you into our world, you know, but um, it's always worthwhile to do that. So what's the biggest mistake that actors make when they come into the room at auditions? Um, I would say if it's an open call, uh, how can I put it? It's like drawing attention to yourself for the wrong reason. You know, like that sort of sense of like being, hey, how y'all doing today? Or what about, you know, it, it, um, if it's an open call, I think we really just want to get to know you. And so the best thing you can do is say hello and start singing your best and dancing <laughs> your best. And because that's really what we're after, you know. And then as we get to know you, you sort of have more freedom to, to like I always say, there's a, a very Tony Award winning, winning wonderful actress who one time, when cell phones first became popular, went over to her handbag and took a phone call in the middle of her audition. But she could do that because she was who she is. <laughs> and everybody laughed and we were like, buddy, come on. We, you know, it was so funny and so fun. But I can't think of anyone except her who could get away with it. Right. You know? And so, you know, it, it, like once we get to know you, I guess if we put it like this, when you walk in the room, all we have is what we're going to experience with you during that two minutes that you're there. And so every if you do something really weird in that two minutes, then we're, we don't know what to think because is that just like a crazy one weird thing that he did or is he always like that you know <laughs> because you know all we have is that little bit it's like a job interview absolutely so you just want to be your best self you're not different from the way you normally are but just your best version of yourself I think um, 
Yeah, so I think actors who are like tugging, you know, dancers who are like tugging on their leotards or not paying attention or I, I guess I can name this name because she's such a wonderful person. My, my dear friend Janet Rothermel, who's a choreographer and she was an associate choreographer for years. And Anthony Van Last, when she was auditioning for Joseph, Anthony Van Last saw her in a corner helping some girls figure out a little sequence of steps and teaching them and helping them. And he said, that girl's for me. And she ended up, you know, like, let's put, I think she was a swing. And, you know, she ended up being uh, his associate for many, many years on a variety of projects because she was not looking at herself in the mirror and tugging on her tights, but she was helping others and, and present and, you know, alive. And, you know, that's what we're after, right? Absolutely. So when, uh, after a dance, well, so when, it's good to know it for me too, to like, like, oh, when I'm in the background, I better be paying attention because <laughs> the eyes are always watching us. So when you get to saying this To is, get to know you more than yeah. to judge you too. You know what I mean? I, oh, yeah, we are always watching you, but it's, it's, it's from a positive place. It's not like we're, you know, who's bad here. It's right. more like who's great and who do we want to work with. Absolutely. You know? Uh, I think a, a lot of dancers, uh, and I always, I, I think I'm biased to dancers since that's how my foot got in the door. But then all of a sudden we have to sing and we get nervous. Uh, people ask, where is the best place to have eye contact when you're singing the song? Because I think so many people want to look at you. Yeah, I, I can't speak for everyone, and I know a lot of like colleges have specific ways of training people. Um, a lot of that, like having a, a, you know, a spot just above the heads and everything. I think that comes from the old days of auditioning on a stage and you were just like sending out a performance, but now we audition in such smaller rooms. It's hard not to acknowledge the people are there. It's hard to get that circuit of energy that you need to do a good, to really tell a story while you're singing without at least making some contact. So for me, I always say, I don't want to be your scene partner. Like, I don't want you to sing to me. Right. But if you look at me or if you take us in, that's only natural and that's only, that's a natural part of being in the room singing for us. I, I hope that makes sense. No, it makes complete sense. And the whole, like, finding a dot above the head, I find, is so difficult. And um, I, I, I find that actors sort of, it's hard, it's hard for, it's hard to stay present in the room when you do that sometimes. So mm -hmm. I don't mind if actors acknowledge us and look at us a little bit while they're while they're singing. Oh, well, that's that's really good to know. And but sometimes I think you know, like they have to look at the resume and they have to to go and talk to their friends. And so I think maybe that people look at the dots because then they they think, oh, they don't see that. Right. But. Right. Well, I think that, like, that's why I don't want to be your scene partner, because if you're locked eyes with me while you're singing, then I feel self-conscious, and I become, like, you know, I feel like I can't whisper to those, <laughs> or I can't make a note or something, because I feel like I'll affect things, but but if, you know, if you take us in. That's then, great. Yeah. So there must be some great pride in when you discover, find new talent, and you're nurturing new talent. I mean, how, how part of that part of the process is so satisfying for it, you of course it is of course i mean and i think it's something about working on you that's unique to working on musicals because you do you do find yourself in a, a position of opening doors um i suppose if you work in television you you're constantly finding people but um you know i always say we don't ever really discover anybody but if you're in, if you're there and you see 
you know, it's just being able to give somebody his first job on Broadway, giving somebody his first national tour, you know, um, being the person who got to be there to do it is the way I look at it, you know, like you got to be the one to open the door and sometimes it might be somebody else, you know, Jim Carnahan or Bernie Telsey is opening the door, but like, I think we all share that, like, that's a, that's a special part of the job is, is being able to offer somebody an opportunity. So you have to always deal with actors and actors' egos, but how do you interpret uh, the directors and the choreographers and when they're saying what they want? Is that a people skill that you've developed or you just have to guess sometimes? Well, you hope, like, as you work with somebody, you know, on multiple projects, you, you gain more and more information about what, you know, how they work, the kinds of dancers, the kinds of actors that they like. So that's helpful. If it's not your very first time with someone, you, you, I, I go into it. I go into something with, you know, Susan Stroman with a little bit more confidence than I would with somebody who I'd never worked with before because I have had the experience. Right. I mean, her imagination is so great and her, you know, her talent is so great. You never know what she's going to be looking for <laughs> next. But I feel comfortable, you know. Um, uh, with So when it's a new person, you have to kind of develop that rapport and that relationship and sometimes you don't have you know you hope that you'll be able to tap into their 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 imagination so that you can try to serve that you know but I think one thing about being a casting director with ego thing is if you are somebody who doesn't need a lot of credit for things that's a good thing like if Mm. you're somebody who is just happy to have been a part of the process you know, that that's, I mean, unfortunately, because I think that what casting directors do is very, very important to the whole process. Oh, and absolutely. We are just like a I designer. See, are those all awards up there? Casting awards? <laughs> yeah, those are, yeah. That's, congratulations, so, that's wonderful. You. So, you know, I, but I do think that nobody really wants the, you know, I think that uh, your ability to sit back and listen to others and take things in and, you know, kind of be creative in a, in a way that kind of serves what those people are thinking about rather than what you had in your mind. Sometimes I'll have an idea that isn't really in keeping and you, you know, you push that person through and you see if that, if, you know, sometimes it sparks something in the creative right. team and sometimes it only goes to prove that what they were thinking about is exactly what they want, you know, so... And so is it different with uh, sometimes they give you a lot of power and they just they'll show up to the final callback, or are sometimes once they're in the room you kind of relinquish your power? How does that power struggle work with you in each situation? Well, um, I would say that you know the some casting some some directors and choreographers are very very collaborative in the casting process and some aren't, and so. It doesn't mean that they don't love casting or that they don't love their casting director, but they, they're, they just don't really need to discuss things mm. with us, you know. And so in those situations, I mostly spoke, speak when I'm spoken to, or speak when, <laughs> or you know, when someone asks me what I think, or if I, I know something about an actor that hasn't been said, or you know, I, I try to to be helpful and creative in the process rather than having it be about what I think and what I want or what I you know but sometimes a director will say what do you think and sometimes um, 
it's it's just it's not like they don't care or it's not important to them. It's just their their creative life is is set in a different way that they don't really need the casting director's approval or opinion on something. It's better than approval. So you know you just have to be uh, open to. It's all kind of fun, you know. It's oh, just, absolutely. You know, some days you go and it's like you, you have no idea what anybody's, like they're not very communicative and you don't know what they thought of anybody and, you know, you're, you're just sort of present for it all. And then sometimes it's a really lively exchange of ideas and, and everything in between. Yeah. You know? I know I'm finding fascinating right now. I think we don't think of casting directors, we in general, as people. And like the fact that you're insecure and that you might not, you know, might not speak when you're spoken to to the director. And in my head, I'm like, wait, you're Tara Rubin. What you can talk to anyone you want. So it is interesting to see that, you know, that there's a whole other dynamic that us as as actors were so I hate to say it, we're narcissistic that we walk in the room and everything's about us. And you know, we have no idea that, you know, as soon as we walked in the room, you know, we don't, we're not right. So it, that's, that, for me, is, is great to know. Right. You, right. You, it has a lot less to do with you than you think it does sometimes, you know? Yes. Yeah, or something personal about you. Yes. You mentioned uh, pushing actors. Do you ever steer clear of, say, you know what, he, he's very talented, but right now he's, he has a reputation of being difficult to work with. Do you have to uh, maneuver stuff like that, or is that just something that you just... That's a really tricky thing because... You know, it's a it's a human being and a job and a livelihood involved, and so the only thing I would say is, um, I think in our office we all kind of share that we don't speak up about, like we share that information when we think it's important to share it. Mm -hmm. But you know, someone who misbehaved on a on a national tour of an unsuccessful su successful show might not misbehave for Susan Stroman. Exactly. Or might not misbehave when, you know, they're, you know, maybe he was going through a bad time in his life or whatever it is. So I, I think that actually dance captains and um, uh, stage managers are a lot more vocal about that kind of stuff than we are. Understandably. They, oh, absolutely. They went on tour with them. They were backstage with them. You know, they, but... Um, yeah, I always say, everybody always be on your best behavior. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> well, I mean, we talked about how nice you are, but I've noticed that, uh, like, Eric and Mary here as well are also very nice and personable. And you walk out of that audition, you're like, I don't know if I booked it, but I felt like I did a good job. Is that something that just is a coincidence, or do you trickle down? Well, and I would say that Lindsay and Caitlin are like that, too. I, I guess um, I don't think they necessarily get it from me. I probably am attracted to people who um, are, you know, who love actors too. You know, and and I, I suppose, you know, if someone grew up in this company, like Caitlin and Lindsay did, they started out as interns and then assistants and now nice. they're casting directors. So I suppose there was a certain amount of um, like learning how to do it. I learned how to treat actors from Vinny and Jeff, and you know they, they were, they so were kind. known, they were known for that. Yes. So for me, there's people. I, I'm always flattered, and I'm always kind of um, reassured to hear that people think that I'm nice to actors. But having grown up at Johnson Lift, I couldn't imagine doing it any other way. You know, it's, it doesn't seem like I should get any extra credit for that because 
doing less than that wouldn't be acceptable, you know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. How has the internet and video submissions and stuff like that changed the audition process? It's great. Oh, it's, it is? <laughs> it's great. I mean, you know, tons and tons of tape is sometimes a hard thing to plow through. But it's great for, like, the kid who's on the road to send you a tape so you can just get a sense of him and then get back to him and say, yeah, you should come in for this. You uh, should move heaven and earth. You should pay for the flight, whatever it is. But it, it kind of takes that preliminary step sometimes. Also, so many actors have websites now and clips and all kinds of information about them, singing at Joe's Pub. And, mm. and, and that's helpful because so much of the casting we do is for readings and, and developmental Things where we don't have an audition process. Oh, okay. And so I can say to a director, "Look at this clip. Here he is being really funny at, at fifty four below." And and it's you know it's helpful for that way. So yay on websites and 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 all of that. It, I think it's great. That's wonderful. Mm -hmm. uh, so have you ever had like a big career disappointment? I know we mutually were talking about Thou Shalt Not earlier, but is there one project that you were just it's that's something that kind of broke your heart that it just wasn't successful? Yeah, quite a few. <laughs> I mean, more than you'd think, you know. I'll, I'll just talk about some things that happened. Uh, Big Fish, I think. I can't I can't believe that it's not, you know, that people didn't think that that was the most... I just loved that musical. Mm. I thought, I thought the, it was great. Um, uh, and last season we had It Should Have Been You, which I I loved that piece and yeah. I loved the story and I loved David Hyde Pierce. And so it was that was sort of sad to see that close because I felt like there was a nice entertainment there for people to enjoy. And there's a long list of them, you know, it's like, but um, you learn something from all of them. And we were talking about that with Thou Shalt Not, you know, sometimes... Sometimes you learn as much from, you know, uh, going through that experience as you do from, you know, maintaining something for 10 or 15 years. Yeah. Well, so, it's over Broadway. I can't believe that that oh, wasn't well-received. It yeah, was I can't so either. great. Yeah, I can't either. So, but, you know. Yeah, you work with Stroman a lot, which is... I have yes. that, yeah, that privilege yeah. oh it's, yeah yes she's, so you have yeah, too she got me i went to an open call uh for christmas carol and that's how i met her so I, open calls are good yeah a lot of people have really good audition skills and then when they get into the room they're not always they don't follow through have there have there been moments where some you don't have to say any names but people are like oh miscasting and stuff like that does that happen yes. often there are some i i've heard from time to time and i guess we see it when it when the show opens that people were a little bit disappointing, that they felt like, you know, that the creative team feels that, like, their finest moment was in the audition, and not so much that they just, uh, occasionally an actor just doesn't have that experience of growth in the rehearsal process that you had hoped that he would have or she would have, you know. So. What would be your proudest moment of, of your career, or one or two? or? Uh, well, um, all the Stroman stuff, of course. Of course, and, yes. Um, I think, you know, the first job I was hired to do was the, the Kennedy um, Center Sondheim Celebration, and Eric Schaefer was nice enough to hire me when I had just started my company, and the, f the very first play of that sixth um, show, the first show of the festival was Sweeney Todd, and I got there, 
and drove up to the Kennedy Center in a taxi. I came straight from the airport, you know, like changed into my dress in the bathroom of the airport because <laughs> I was like so busy. And we drove up to the Kennedy Center and it said, and my name was on the huge sign. And that was, I was like, wait a minute, is that really my name? Wow. Like, I, I'm not even sure I had asked for it, you know, and it was there. And so that was like a big moment because I felt like I had arrived then, at, like that I was going to be capable of having my own business, that I was going to be capable of having my own company when I saw that. And, and I think Billy Elliot was one of my biggest. Uh, I think I'm, I'm proud that I got to work on that. That was an amazing musical. Me too. That When I saw that, uh, I sat in the audience and was like, I have to be in this show. And you know, I found out when the required call was. There was something about that, you know, that... I was, you know, because I had no, you know, I had no idea. I mean, here I was like traveling this fan a lot, so I wasn't even thinking about it. And I just, it was a, there, every, I think every person in that show felt the same way. Yeah, yeah. You know, just being a cog in the wheel of, of that story. Mm-hmm. You know, just Casey Nicola, who of course is also a privilege anytime you get to work with him. He and I, saw, we were in London doing casting Spamalot, and we went to see Billy Elliot. And we, at the intermission, we were, weeping so hard we could like we were just both complete messes you know and and that was my first experience of seeing it over there and then when I was lucky enough to get to work on it I couldn't believe it you know Hmm. so uh, if you had any last advice to give young young and old uh, gypsies dancers and singers what would it be be yourself be true to yourself Um, work hard be nice to everybody. That's a pretty good life, right? That's a really, that that's a, that's a really good life. So I'd like to end the podcast with a, a song uh, that would be maybe your favorite song from oh, all gosh. the shows that you've ever worked on. I know. I was thinking about that. Um, one would be She's a Woman from Kiss of the Spider Woman. Oh. I love that song. Um, all the Sondheim stuff. Um, Good Thing Going is one of my favorite songs. I, we've been working on Miss Saigon this week, and so that score remains, you know, the way Miss score. Those scores, like, you'd think that you would get tired of, of hearing things, and actually when they're really great, you never get tired of hearing them. Right. Um, so those scores, and um, I guess that's enough, right? Oh, that's plenty. (laughs) That is plenty. Well, thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. She wears satin, Spanish lace. She feels wild, chinchilla brush across her face. She's lucky She's a woman She wears diamonds Bright as stars She has lovers open doors To fancy cars She's lucky So lucky She's a woman Dab across her wrist, a secret ribbon diary, 
of all the men she's kissed. So many men she's kissed. Lilac waters bathe her skin. At the opera, ushers gasp when she sweeps in Gifts of chocolate, roses too Hand-delivered notes confessing I love you Milky lotions, scented creams She's the climax of your technicolor And I wish that she 